stronger, be wiser. Our seat, our table. This is our voice, our time, our moment. Our seat, our table. Yeah, hey, 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 hey. Our seat, our table. You are listening to Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge. We are here in Winter Park, and do we have a fantastic show for you? We have a lot of our business leaders today, whether they're in business for themselves, whether they are working for several of our local organizations. We are also speaking with people who have worked with the Center for Disease Control around this pandemic. Now that we are in uh, vaccination stage and we're hoping that everyone is getting vaccinated, we need to know exactly what we're doing. And when I say we, I'm specifically, specifically talking to those who are taking the vaccine and are having reactions to them and you're feeling doubtful as to whether or not you would like to take the second one. My name is Barbara Chandler and I am the host of Our Seat, Our Table. We also have with us Andrew Brown with Brown Box Creative Solutions. Good morning. Hey, Andrew, how are you? I'm good. Excellent. And then we have LaVonda Wilder with the Eatonville Chamber of Commerce. Good morning, LaVonda. How are you? Good morning, everyone. I am well. How are you, Barbara? I am getting better and better every day, and I look forward to tomorrow because then I should be much better and probably be at my best. Um, I definitely want to welcome to the table. We have Mackenzie Wise, who um, again was once employed with the Center for Disease Control. We also have Stephanie Aguello with um, Florida Hospitals, the Seventh-day Adventist, Ad Advent Health, pardon me. And then we also have that will be joining us will be Denise Hewitt, Denise is a business owner with Hair Essentials, and she will be joining us. As we all realize during this pandemic, so much of our world has changed, and it's continually changing. We're continually shifting at a faster pace, um, an unconventional pace than what we're used to. So speaking with our local business owners and seeing how they're doing, I think it's very important. Um, I'll, I'll start off this morning. I took the vaccine last last Monday, and I thought I was doing well. And um, I had I had what I thought was a terrible terrible reaction to it. So Mackenzie, did I do the right thing by taking this vaccine? And what what was the reaction all about? Yes, you absolutely did do the right thing. And I will say these vaccines for COVID-19 or any other vaccine or any other drug that you've ever taken um, for medical condition or for preventative reasons, there are always very normal side effects. 
And so with that, um, it's pretty well published and transparent. That should be something you are aware of with the paperwork that you're given when you get your vaccine. Um, if there are high risk groups that should not receive the vaccine, they should be made aware of what their alternative is. But as far as the normal side effects, um, arm soreness, maybe some flu-like symptoms, um, those things normally happen and they are expected to pass. Um, it's a little bit of discomfort for a couple of days for a good amount of immunity to protect you for a while from something that could take you out even more. So I say you definitely made the right decision and hopefully uh, you're feeling better today. I had my first dose and I couldn't really lift my arm that well. I haven't had my second dose yet, um, but it's coming up. Um, but those things will pass and, and they're very normal. Um, so good job, Barbara. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mackenzie. Now, Andrew, um, have you, I know, Andrew, you're probably the youngest amongst us outside of Roth. Um, have you had your first dose and are you thinking about it? You know what's interesting? I have not had my first dose. I was very hesitant. I'm the part of the group that was very hesitant about taking the vaccine, not because of side effects. I, I know with vaccines come side effects. What I did not like or what I was weary of was the time frame that we went from no vaccine to now three, four vaccines. It was very mm. quick when generally a vaccine takes like three to five years to you know come out and and be on the market fully um so i'm glad that mackenzie's here because mackenzie i know you know more about that process that a vaccine yeah. goes through um how was this process like rushed and how did yeah. it did it affect the quality at all no. Okay. So I'm so glad you asked that question because I think this is a key question that if we communicate it well, um, which we in 2020, our leaders did not, but if we communicate this well, it can really help ease fears in the public, especially within our own black and brown communities, because let's face it, we have seen trauma and yeah. we have seen um, what research can do when it is not done um, right and when um, ethics and confidentiality and, and health isn't at the forefront. So with typical vaccine development, like Andrew said, that usually takes years and not months like what we saw with COVID-19. Um, and before the COVID-19 pandemic, getting a new vaccine conceptualized and then approved could take not just years, but also billions of dollars to do. So um, let me just kind of go through what typically happens and what happened with COVID-19 as far as clinical research methods um, are concerned. Every single vaccine when, when developing, we start out with an exploratory phase, right? So this is the phase where scientists are studying the structure and behavior of the pathogen, in this case, a virus, um, and then also how to get the human body to best produce an immune response to that. That's the exploratory phase. So one thing that helped to speed this up for COVID-19 is one, before, before SARS-CoV-2 arrived, we already had a whole lot of research done on similar coronaviruses like SARS and MERS that already existed. 
Um, and this actually gave a head start on a lot of that exploratory research. Um, additionally, vaccine technology that we're using for COVID-19, um, I'm sure you hear the terms, this is an mRNA vaccine, or this is a vector vaccine, or you know things like that. That technology also already existed. So scientists did not have to like start at ground zero when it came to SARS-CoV-2, because we already knew a good amount about this virus. This is now just a new type that we needed to continue learning about. Um, so that shortened the exploratory phase just a bit because of those advantages. Once you get past the exploratory phase, we get into a preclinical phase. And this is typically where safety and efficacy testing starts to happen on cell models, animal models, or even mathematical models. Okay, so that still occurred. Um, but the biggest thing that most of us pay attention to is the clinical development phase. This is where there's an application to the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, for human trials to test this vaccine on humans. And typically, we have three phases that are part of those human trials. The first phase is where we have this new vaccine technology. We understand it, at least from a lab animal model perspective. We understand what the body should do. Now we want to see how it responds in humans. Well, in phase one, we'll start administering those vaccines to a small group of people, maybe less than 100, just to determine very early on safety and responses. And then there's a phase two where hundreds of test subjects receive the vaccine. Again, looking for safety, but also now determining immune responses, understanding scheduling and dosing. And then phase three, the final phase, which we expect anything that the FDA has pushed through to be through this phase three process. This is where thousands or even tens of thousands of human subjects are recruited and they receive the vaccine and we're measuring safety again, but also now looking for side effects and understanding overall effectiveness moving forward. Now with these three phases, the reason why those were able to go past in, in a matter of months versus years is one, trials that require the number of people that our COVID-19 trials required. Um, if you look at uh, Pfizer, they had over 43,000 people in their trials. Moderna had over uh, 30,000 people. Johnson & Johnson had 40,000 people. We needed a lot of people for these trials, and that usually does take years. But for COVID-19, we had a lot of public that were rooting for this. I even volunteered for some zero survey, survey trials. If you remember at the very beginning of this pandemic, I mean, we all were desperate to help others. We saw the death tolls, we saw the impact. So with this, we actually had all, these trials filled up much faster due to eager volunteers rooting for the success of these trials. So recruitment took a lot less time. Secondly, let's talk about money. I already mentioned that a lot of times these trials can take billions of dollars and sometimes the billions of dollars it takes time to allocate and prioritize and it gets prioritized in phases, you know, so we're not investing it all at once. Well, with the COVID-19 vaccine, the government established nearly a $10 billion um, reserve money and federal funds to accelerate the timeline through these clinical trials. And what that ended up helping with is now we have dedicated vaccine funding that already exists, and that helped to move vaccine candidates through those preclinical and clinical trials more quickly. This also enabled researchers to advance to that phase three trial in a matter of months compared to years. 
And then lastly, it accelerated our development because many of these trials and studies were basically looked at that phase one, two, and three, where we're looking at hundreds and thousands, et cetera, and looking at safety in all of those trials, but also different focuses of immune response and scheduling and dosing, side effects, all of those were essentially able to be combined together and studied together. So every single piece of the puzzle that you would want to be in place to ensure that these vaccines are safe, where there's a certain number of participants that represent the general population that were recruited and involved, that there are efficacy numbers that came out that tell us how protective that these are going to be. And then also understanding the side effects that happened in these groups of study participants. All of those still happen with COVID-19, just as they happen with every other vaccine that has ever been developed. There were no corners. Um, what's the terminology? There are no corners that were being skimmed or steps that were being skipped. It really came down to the fact that we had money that was developed and um, dedicated to this to help move this forward. And it didn't take as long to get a head start because we knew so much about this already. Okay. Okay. And, and I know that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was, was a lot. Yes. Okay. And there we have it. The one know. thing so that, excuse me, the one thing that I found interesting that you pointed out, Mackenzie, mm -hmm. is that the effort was already there. Mm -hmm. The tests were already being done. Mm -hmm. We were already working on this, but I think the ball was dropped somewhere because a lot of us are under the impression that it just poof, and, and it happened. But there were mm -hmm. steps in place already. And I think sometimes if we make people aware of things, maybe make people aware of the background, we yes. wouldn't have experienced as much negativity and hype as we've received from these three vaccinations. You are 100% correct. And one thing that I have learned in my training and my academic career, just like every other epidemiologist out there, public health communication is so important to really serving the public and protecting their health. And we dropped the bomb in 2020 with public health communication. I'm just going to say it. We did not have leadership that was supporting honest science driven, transparent communication. And you're just now starting to see commercials and, you know, different um, websites popping up that provide the information in an understandable format and, you know, really elevating these scientific leaders instead of discrediting them, discrediting them in public. Um, we saw all of that in 2020 with the leadership that we had. And what was missing was basic public health communication, honest, diverse, consistent communication about what was happening, why it was happening, so the public was informed. Definitely, I feel like it could have put a cap on some of these rumors and, and fear that people had. And, and we were very desperate to have this vaccination once it hit the market, but then you still had the backlash from parties that decided they would not have it because of mm -hmm. past experiences mm -hmm. and history repeating itself. Right. Fear yep. of history repeating itself, mm -hmm. I should say. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that speaks to how important it is to have diversity and inclusion woven into public health messaging as well, you know, and making sure that no community feels like an outlier, that communities okay. understand exactly where they stand when it comes to, you know, the new vaccines that were developed or the way that, you know, information is being communicated out. Um, that needs to be inclusive and it needs to be diverse and it needs to be evidence-based, based, based on the professionals and the experts and not just based on fake news. Correct. Yeah, because Correct. it became like desperation. You had yeah. young people dressing dressing as elderly women in order to get the vaccination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, wow. it became like desperation. <laughs> LaVonda, really? I was not aware of that. Oh, they were, well, they didn't actually arrest them, but the police were actually called, and that actually happened in Florida. Oh, you know, no. Yeah, just desperation. I, I was aware where people were driving in from other counties or other states in order to get vaccines. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm definitely aware of that. So you're right when you, when you talk about the measures that people were going through based on, as, as Mackenzie stated, uh, communications, the mm -hmm. way it's disseminated. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to add to going back to some of the points that you talked about, and maybe this is LaVonda mentioning the history. And I think that is a really important piece to just spend a moment thinking about because as I hear, and I, you know, I work for a large hospital system um, and I'm not a scientist myself, but I understand and, and I've been following the, the way things have been communicated. And at the same time that I'm hearing all this, I'm a professional in healthcare system. I also know the history, at least in the country of the United States, where we've had sanctioned scientific studies that have been done that have impacted negatively black and brown people in our community. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for us to also consider that piece as to understand why people are hesitant. Um, that helps us to then understand how we need to communicate and that at, at points we need to validate what people are feeling and provide that education to ensure That's that they right. do feel heard. That's right. And I've been lately, you know, pretty pleased at seeing some major um, medical journals, the New England Journal of Medicine being one, making it a point to publish perspectives which address this. Um, I just saw last month articles um, addressing vaccine hesitancy in BIPOC communities yeah. towards trustworthiness, partnership, and reciprocity, and it and it detailing you know the historical context that we have dealt with when it comes to systemic racism and marginalization and just plain old neglect and right. bringing up you know key experiences from the syphilis study at Tuskegee um, to even examples that you know involve um, certain tribes used for research and you know just what that looks like those articles need to keep coming out for our medical professionals to understand um i've even seen you know perspectives that they're publishing on how to help insurance encourage acceptance um in certain communities the role of racism and 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 that role in healthcare. are we need these these well-regarded journals and these well-regarded healthcare professionals to continue to amplify these very real issues, write about them like you would write about anything else. Yes. 
um, and talk about them so that we can get past and find some solutions to improving public health. Because what has broken my heart with this whole ordeal is seeing our people um, disproportionately affected by COVID-19 in regards to severe illness and death, but then also being the, the, the smallest group to take vaccine to protect ourselves. And, you know, that's heartbreaking in itself because it is coming from a place of trauma and also not receiving the public health messaging and communication that we should have received so that we could make informed decisions. Yeah, and not decisions based around fear. And as Andrew stated, there is there is a, a large portion of younger people, not necessarily younger people, uh, people who are in their mid fifties that we are just not uh, trusting. Um, so you're you're absolutely correct, uh, Mackenzie, in stating that you are listening to our seat, our table, the leadership lounge. You can hear us um, Friday mornings, nine to ten on WPRK, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today we have in at the table with us Mackenzie Wise, Stephanie Aguillo. Uh, help me on that one, Stephanie. Lavonda Wilder <laughs> with the Eatonville Chamber of Commerce. Andrew Brown and myself, we are discussing the importance of the African-American community um, getting vaccinated. Uh, Mackenzie, as well as Stephanie, they're giving us straight facts, digestible facts as to why it is important that we continue, continue to educate ourselves, educate, educate one another as to why this is a good thing for us um, and, and keeping us uh, well and, and healthy. I'm glad, Mackenzie, that you brought up or at least mentioned, you know, the medical journals publishing um, and acknowledging the trauma that um, Black and Brown communities have gone through. You mentioned the syphilis trials in Tuskegee. Can you briefly, for those who are not aware, can you or even Stephanie talk about some of those um, traumas like the Tuskegee trial, like what happened with Henrietta Lacks and cancer, just so people have like a back a history if you if they're not aware of where the trauma is coming from. Yes. Whoever yes, definitely. And I can talk. I mean, I read um, the book on Henrietta Lacks, the the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. If I'm quoting that title correctly. Such a good book. And if you guys have not read it, you listeners um, listening in right now, it is such a good read. For me, that book really highlighted um, an issue with HIPAA and um, patient rights and patient privacy in a time where those laws were not as advanced and reinforced as they are today. And so this woman's body was essentially in, you know, she was coming and presenting to healthcare providers to receive treatment, just like any of us would with a condition. But aspects of her actual body being used for research, which to the advantage here in America and all over the world, we have come up with all kinds of medical advancements because of her um, and because of 
the the cells that they were able to obtain from her but here's the thing that was never disclosed to her and her family that's there right. was never any sort of um consent given and even more so where is the compensation for her and now her surviving family since she's not here anymore for that contribution and so that in itself is severely taking advantage of a community and of a woman that at that time she didn't know and understand what they were doing. That was a research abuse. The same thing with the syphilis study at Tuskegee. These men thought that they were being seen to be cared for by medical professionals. They did not know that they were being studied and withheld treatment for them that could have saved their lives or saved them from disability. Those men died and dealt with negative repercussions of illness because these people, these researchers decided it was worth just withholding things that would help them and just studying. There was no consent again. There was no explaining of this to these men. They were taken advantage of, of and it was a research abuse. Um, and there's a recent example um, that JAMA talked about with blood samples from members of the Havasupai tribe, um, where blood samples from them, this is recently, were improperly used for research. It comes down to there needs to be consent, it needs to be explained, um, and they're in privacy and and all of that confidentiality needs to be protected because these our communities are whole legal human beings we are not any less of a human being and so it needs to be treated as such when it comes to healthcare research wow and Mackenzie, I love what you said. I would add to that too, um, another book recommendation, Medical Apartheid, which really talks about the history. You know, the history we learn in school doesn't even touch the surface of what our communities have experienced. And, you know, even from slave times when women's bodies were used as test subjects to perfect things like the C-section that are currently used today. Um, that has been a story that unfortunately has been repeated and documented, well-documented throughout at least the development of medical, the medical system in the United States. Um, and we, we see the insidiousness of this medical bias that is seen in disparities today. So, you know, medical mor or maternal mortality rates, black moms dying at rates that are, regardless of education, income, all of those factors that we are told, if you get X, Y, and Z, you will be more likely to be successful. Um, even with those factors, we're still seeing black and brown bodies dying at rates that are significantly higher. And COVID is another example of that. Um, regardless of, again, access to resources, we're still seeing a, a more, a higher negative impact on our communities. Wow. Absolutely. So now, now, now uh, for our audience, our, our listeners, this is again, part of the trauma. This is again, uh, part of that ongoing conversation as to why or why not we feel as though the vaccine could be dangerous to, to, towards us as people, um, African-Americans. Uh, wow, what amazing, amazing information. LaVonda, I know as the Eatonville Chamber, you have been working tremendously hard to keep the business community engaged during the pandemic. Tell us some of the things that you're seeing, some of the ways in which you're continuing to pivot 
through in order to keep business um, businesses uh, afloat and keep them visible? Well, some of the things that we've reverted to are actually using Zoom and all sorts of platforms to keep our members included in what's going on in the public. We've worked with some of the local churches and organizations to help pre-register people for the COVID vaccinations. We're just trying to stay afloat. And if we find out about any sort of um, funds that are available for any of our members or in the general public, we've been very, active in trying to get the information out there to the public. We've started pretty much anything to keep our listeners and members included in what's going on in the communities and our surrounding communities active and just trying to keep us all afloat right now. And pivoting is what most people have had to do in order to keep themselves active, keep themselves relevant, and keep their businesses afloat. Right, right. Yeah, we've had to add things to our businesses that normally we might not have even considered adding, or I've seen people that have lost their jobs, their white collar jobs, and now they've become business owners due to necessity to feed their families. Mm -hmm. Andrew, you are also a small business owner. How has this impacted your business? How has COVID, the, the pandemic, um, impacted your business um, as, as it stands now? It has flipped it upside down, turned it around, and, and <laughs> rolled marbles everywhere. Um, so owning and running three businesses is challenging by itself, and then trying to do it during COVID made it um, more difficult. So it presented a lot of challenges that in one area, so our fashion education program, we were already rolling out online learning. And so the pandemic sped it up. With our um, events business, fashion illustration event business, it completely closed everything. We had a calendar from January to December of 2020 booked and in a matter of two weeks everything from april through december was canceled um and you can imagine the money that comes along with that disappears yeah. as well yeah um, so and then with consulting it went from consulting clients on you know how do we do in-person events how can you increase your sales doing a live event to you still have to sell your products but prioritizing your sales and your source of income and balancing that with your customers desire to really just stay alive Mm -hmm. and really trying to determine, is this luxury a necessity? Wow. So it, it transformed everything, but like all business owners, you have to bounce and roll with the times. And so, you know, we're, I'm still here. We're still here. We, I now know that I can consult somebody in Alaska if I want to. That's true. Um, whereas before we were really limiting our resources to what is here and local. So it, it, it 
like I said, threw it upside down and spilled out marbles. But of course, you if you shot marbles, you know, you you connect the marbles together and you make some points. Yeah, that's so right. That's what I did. Very nice. Very nice. So once again, you are listening to Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge. Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge was created with the intent to hear from our local leaders, community leaders, to continue to bring educational content, community content to us from a very organic and authentic grassroots level. Um, by now, let's see, it is Friday. Um, by now, the the Chevin trial, Derek Chevin trial, the police officer who murdered George Floyd uh, in June of 2020, uh, the trial, um, he has been found guilty. Any feelings around that? I, I speak for myself right now. I was definitely thinking this would not have gone in the direction that it did, um, that, that we got a guilty verdict. I thought this would be another upsetting um, adding to the trauma of African-Americans, um, seeing him walk away. Um, I, I was very pleased. I, I think this particular day, I had just came back um, from doing something, running some errands, and I went to sleep. This was after the vaccine, a day or two after the vaccine, and I was sleeping, and I woke up to a couple of messages that the verdict had came in. So I know a lot of people are saying justice has been served, and a lot of people are saying accountability. We finally have, someone has finally been held accountable for these atrocious murders that we have been seeing on a, um, on a national scale. So um, I think this is the beginning. I think this is a very start. Um, I think we get to now, and when I say we, meaning um, the Department of Justice, um, our, our administration, they get to now look at a dip from a deeper angle as to how is this continuing to happen and how do we get it to stop? What I have to, I, I was surprised, I will say to answer your question, I was surprised it came back guilty because again, we are used to not seeing accountability for um, negative impacts on our community. Uh, but we are probably the only country that has to deal with things of this sort. I have a friend from Canada, and she always says, when I go to Canada, I, I don't tell people that I'm American because they think that what's happening is unfathomable. Mm -hmm. And she withhold, withholds that information so that they don't ask her questions like, how could that happen? Do, do all Black and just over-stereotyping what is occurring? And it's one of those telltale things like, this is so ingrained from the very beginning of the history of this country being established this was something that has been ingrained from day one. And we're finally seeing some type of, as you mentioned, accountability. But it goes to show that this same thing happened 
yesterday, two weeks ago, 30 years ago, all of the, so many people have been affected and have not seen the accountability. And it's like, okay, finally, we're getting it. But will we get it two weeks from now when someone else goes on trial for doing the same thing? It, it, it is very disheartening. Um, you know, I don't know what you all feel, but for me, it it's very disheartening to continue to see it happen and see such little accountability come out of it. I, I completely agree. Um, I mean, while I felt it was a, I felt like in Chauvin's case, that was a sort of drop in the bucket mm. victory. Um, and more so because I'm thinking about George Floyd's family, yeah. hoping that brings them some peace, his, you know, loved ones and supporters. Hopefully that brings just a little bit of peace. Um, and that's really what I was most grateful for um, because we need these little drops in the bucket to hold on to some sort of hope yeah. to keep pushing. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, only he was held accountable in this example. We still don't have mm -mm. broad standing accountability yeah. where just um, where we know our system is holding people accountable. We can trust that. And there's some responsibility that's happening across the system. We still don't have that. We're still so far from that. And we still don't have justice either. This mm -hmm. one example, it doesn't mean now all of a sudden our system has found a way to provide just behaviors and treatment. Yeah. Um, and that's not there yet, you know? And while I feel like we can express gratitude and be thankful for this one example, because I hope it helps someone sleep better at night and i hope it helps a lot of us hold on to a little more hope because i know that's what it did for me um is like okay here's an example there's hope we can still keep fighting you know but this this race is nowhere near over and we have a lot more running to do and we have a lot more pushing to do you know we still have like andrew said i mean you can think about brianna taylor yeah. Uh, Elijah McClain. We can think about um, Ahmaud Arbery. We can think about um, Dante Wright, you know, mm -hmm. Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice, Emmett Till, for God's sake. Yes. Yeah. You know, like just, I mean, the fact that there are, and I'm, I'm definitely missing a lot of people. Sandra mm -hmm. Bland, mm -hmm. you know, just thinking about, and these are just the ones that were brought up to the forefront in the media. This is missing so, so, so many more. And so just thinking about that, I don't bring that up to, you know, make the conversation feel overwhelming, but I bring it up just to really emphasize we have this one positive outcome with this one case, and we have to keep pushing for it to become a consistent, integrated part of the system. I agree so much with what you're saying, Mackenzie. And even as you were talking, you know, I don't know what everyone's personal experience was watching parts of this trial, 
But, you know, what I look back and reflect on is look at the cost just to get this one person held accountable. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I reflect on the secondary trauma that even as an individual, I experienced seeing people who witnessed a trial being put on or witnessed a crime being put on trial themselves. Um, the, the people who did dare to speak up and put themselves out there and, and what they had to go through and even just seeing them go through that, you know, it really is weathering our communities. Um, we know that we see that in health, and I can't I can always tie it back to how that's impacting our health because our health is our wealth. Um, and if we don't have health, you know, that's a, that's part of the struggle. So that that secondary trauma of knowing that this not only happened this one time, but this happens daily. You could be sleeping in your home, you could be driving in your car. It doesn't matter the full the, the rules that you're following, that uh, the definition of safety is just not there for people who look a certain way. Um, and that that is affecting us on a daily, annual, generational basis. Mm-hmm. I so agree, Stephanie. And I think that is one one of the reasons I opted not to watch it. Um, was for my health, my overall well-being, my overall um, interactions, uh, my day-to-day interactions, the the immediate disenfranchisement or distrust that I face uh, within the community um, that I'm that I'm a part of, um, and that was one reason I opted not to watch it. I did not want to be impacted any longer. I I couldn't um, house it. I couldn't, I I wasn't able, I wouldn't have been able to take it. I I don't think I would be able to take it. That's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to take it. I I knew that I wouldn't. And I was afraid that um, I was aware. I was aware that if I watched it and something triggered me in my day-to-day work, that I would respond, uh, you know, with with watching it, with Mm -hmm. all of that going on. So I, I really made a conscious decision not to, not to. And that speaks volumes to this state that we're in with, with media and social media and, you know, the videos and the images that are put in front of us that we're not even seeking out. And mm-hmm. it is trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. You know, yeah. I, I am like you, Barbara, I could not. I can't watch a lot of this. I, you know, dive in to read and educate myself when I have the mental and emotional capacity to do so. Um, But I am not interested in watching a video of another human being being slaughtered. And I will tell you, while I have not, while I have tried to avoid those images and those videos um, for my own mental health, I have accidentally seen things on social media just scrolling past that I will never be able to get out my brain. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's a whole level of mental health that you 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 just brought up um, in our community that definitely needs to be, you know, amplified um, and raised as at t- to the forefront. You know, not even just with um, the social and legal traumas that our communities um, face, but even with the pandemic, um, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of mental health conditions, a lot of triggering, um, a lot of rising in the prevalence of certain conditions that we're seeing. Um, So I think definitely now and moving forward more than ever, 
You know, we definitely need to make sure we are taking care of ourselves and talking when we need to talk to someone. Um, there's so many different resources out there to get plugged into a mental health provider. Um, these traumas are real and they will impact your le- your life in ways that you don't anticipate um, if they're left unchecked. That's so right. I just want to add that in there because that's definitely a, probably a pandemic in itself that mm-hmm. we just have not been able to measure yet. That's true. PTSD. Mm-hmm. And Mackenzie, yeah, I appreciate how you said that too, because um, a lot of the narrative that we hear for our communities is that we're more vulnerable and we're more susceptible. Um, and it almost frames it in a way that for some reason, black and brown and indigenous communities are weaker when, you know, really mm-hmm. the truth is that we are weathered and we are tired because we have been fighting for generations against all of these atrocities that have happened and that again it's not even just what's happened in our lifetime but that generational trauma that's been passed down and we see that in higher rates of these comorbidities that are making us suffer more from the same diseases um but again i i I appreciate shifting that narrative that narrative from that vulnerable to that more that underrepresented that under-resourced the neglected communities um and really that's what we're seeing come out especially with covid yeah, absolutely yeah, really true. Um, we we have our young uh, producer on with us, and um, I definitely want to give him space in which he can share his feelings around this, if you don't mind, my brother Ralph, um, as to what was your take or your your feelings with the the verdict that came in around the Chevin trial. Uh, well, similar to you, Barbara, I didn't really watch it because when the news initially broke about uh, George Floyd, I was just like distraught. Um, I really wasn't sure what to say or what to feel. I was kind of just angry and sad all at once. And honestly, the final verdict, I think that um, it's a step in the right direction. And it's definitely something that needed to happen. Um, however, I think... Uh, like I said, it's it's a start, and it's something that should simply push us further into allowing the system to change and evolve to make sure that things like this don't have to happen again. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I, I saw a post the other day where um, it stated Black men should be able to grow old. You know, we, they should be able to age um, and not lose their lives so early and um you you know those those were those are what we look for we, those are the things that we consider the basics that no longer are necessarily the basics just getting to 50 getting to 70 getting to 80 so you know we just have so much work to do and how we continue to process how we continue to step through this trauma I think that's that's the bigger part of it right now. That That's a large part of it. What are the resources that we have in our community? What are the resources that are available to us in our community? Are we, are we making sure that we are having quote unquote inclusive conversations so everyone can uh, feel a part of, everyone can know that they, they have a space in which they can come into and, and, and seek guidance and seek help? Um, I'm sorry, I I want to say because you said about our gentlemen being able to reach the age of 50, this 
includes our women also now Absolutely. our girls our women it's not just our men anymore no everyone has to be aware now because we've had some recent cases where young girls are being affected by this also that's right. true right yeah and it yeah no that's all right it goes back to perception at the mm. end of the day um you know, we're talking about not reaching 50. Uh, yesterday, I was just driving around and listening to the radio, and they reported a gentleman by the name of Andrew Brown was shot in Elizabeth City. And for a moment, I was like, oh, I was shot? I oh, wasn't shit. shot. And then I had to think, Elizabeth City, that's in New Jersey. Oh my gosh, somebody has my name. Another mm -hmm. person, he was only 42. Um, and, and it's just, again, like every day, and this one was a little bit different because we have the same name and I had to think, wow, could that have been me? It could have been, but, um, also think changing the perception that if you are a police officer and you are, you know, doing your job and you have to respond to a call or something like that towards a person of color, the perception is different. For some reason, the perception yeah. is I, as a police officer, may be in a higher level of danger by dealing with this individual than I would if I was dealing with someone that was white. And mm -hmm. that is really the essential thing that I think a lot of people don't understand. There is a difference in perception whether you're in the workplace and a woman is, excuse me, a woman of color is viewed as angry, when in reality you're just speaking up with passion so people can understand your point of view, whether it is the perception that we are maybe standoffish when in reality we are just trying to make it through the work day and not contribute to this meeting because everything has already been said and I don't need to beat a dead horse anymore. Those are some of the things that we are at a very basic level asking to change. Mm -hmm. I'm not a threat. If you pull me over and, you know, or even if you are, you know, trying to enforce the law and I happen to maybe infringe on the law, the result of that should not be you perceive me to be a threat to you and the only way to neutralize that threat is to kill me. Right, right. There are lots of other things that you can do to neutralize a threat. Um, you pulling your gun and shooting multiple times should not be the instantaneous way to neutralize this threat when a majority of the time the individual is not even a threat. They're right. complying. And we see on body cam footage, they are complying Brilliant. or they are asking questions to get down to the bottom of what is really happening, sharing information, and they are still being treated differently because of that difference in perception, excuse me. And Andrew, something you said that's so important, because I, I have watched some 
videos, not ones where people's lives have been taken. I can't, but I have watched and studied videos where there are people being pulled over by police that are people of color. And I've seen several instances where they're telling people to raise their hands or to calm down or relax while inflicting pain or having a gun in their face and seeing that dichotomy of you instructing me to do something, telling me to calm down while also endangering my life, you know, and I, and whether that's a, a physical gun in, in a, in a police situation, but even to your point as a, as a black woman working in corporate America, whether that's reacting to a situation and being almost expected as a person of color to not have an emotional reaction to something, but also, you know, you're, you're almost put to a, a different standard than, than the general person uh, that is a human and having a human experience. Absolutely. You know, yeah. it really woke me up having conversations with my husband who is a black male, first generation born um, Jamaican heritage brother. And I remember we were having a conversation about, uh, I was going for a run. And I was like, why don't you run with me, you know, in the evenings? And he's like, I can't run at night. And mm -hmm. he just looked at me, you know, and we, and that went into a whole conversation about his experiences growing up in inner city Philadelphia and how many times, and I just know this from my own personal example, so imagine other people's examples. How many times my husband has been pulled over by police, a subset of those with guns drawn. He has been laid on the ground with guns drawn on him. He has been repeatedly, I'm talking over 20 something times, pulled over for no reason. So there's a whole, area that needs improvement with why are we having these interactions to begin with you should not be able to just interrogate stalk or profile or pull us over just for the sake of i want to know where you're going i want to know why your car is nice i want to know why your music is bumping or whatever it may be there should be some sort of legal parameter around when it's okay to interact with the public, especially armed, and when it's not okay, because a lot of these interactions are stemming from situations where these men and women should not have been bothered in the first, first place. They should open harassment. It's, it's harassment. It's open harassment. harassment. Yeah. And one other thing, Andrew, that you said that I really want to um, add to and put a little spin on it. You mentioned perception, and that is such a powerful word because with a lot of these examples, there's an error with perception and that error was not on our side. That okay. error was on the other side with them perceiving us wrong. You know, if I speak up at work and you perceive me as being, of, as, as having an attitude because mm -hmm. of how I look, that's an mm -hmm. error on your side. Yeah, I was not wrong for speaking up at work. So, um, there's that perception, but then we also have the perception within ourselves and our own communities that we need to protect. And I'm really talking about these kids, our babies. There is um, this psychological term that you guys probably know about called self-efficacy. And it's yeah. like the belief that that someone has that they can do what they set their mind out to do, that they can obtain what they aim to obtain and 
self-efficacy is a measure that gets you really far if you have it. But with our children, we have to work extra hard to make sure that they have self-efficacy when it comes to, I could graduate college if that was for me. I could run a business if that was for me. And even more so, I could survive and become elderly. That is in my purpose. And making sure our kids, based on all this trauma that they're seeing, and these younger generations have even more access to the media than we do, you know, making sure that their self-efficacy and their mental health is intact and it doesn't start to make them think that, oh, I can't be successful or, oh, I can't live to the age of 50 or I can't. We have to nip that in the bud and make sure these kids and their minds are protected as well with the perceptions of themselves. That's right. To add that. Control the narrative. Mm -hmm. Start controlling the narrative and putting some positive things out in the atmosphere. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the self-efficacy. I did a, uh, so for those who don't know, I'm also an associate professor here locally. And I did a, a talk um, and I titled my talk very controversially just to get people to come. It was based on the book called uh, Multiplication is for White People. And in the book, it was talking about how math is taught from a per- white perspective. And mm. so my type, my talk was called Colleges for White People and how um, people of color do not have the self-efficacy to say, I can go to college or when I make it here, there are resources that are available to me to help me through college or help me finish college. Um, And talking about our young children, they don't have it because their parents don't necessarily have it. Or like you said, they have access to the media where they can find at their fingertips numbers that say they may not be able to go to college. They don't see how it's affordable. They're not taught how it's affordable. They're not taught that it is something that is very easily achievable. If you graduate high school here in Florida, you're guaranteed admission into, especially here in Central Florida, you're guaranteed admission into either Valencia or Seminole State where you can obtain money to continue through college as long as you do well. So it really goes back to starting from the very beginning, you can teach our children to have the self-efficacy, but you also have to equip them to filter through what they're seeing and Mm. still believe that it is achievable for themselves, despite what they may find on the internet or what they may hear in the media or what they may hear from a friend's mom who didn't know that they were in the room and they were eavesdropping on a particular conversation. Those things are really important as well. Thank you so, so much to all of our amazing guests, um, our listening audience. You've been listening to one hour with Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge. This has helped me. This has helped me in so many ways. I I thought this conversation was um, 
a part of, of, of healing, a part of my healing internally. Um, so, so this is good stuff. We are here every Friday, 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. You can listen to us on WPRK.org, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Again, to our guests, Mackenzie Wise, Stephanie Aguillo. Say it, Stephanie. <laughs> I'm sorry. Arguello. Arguello. Every letter. Arguello. All good. Yes, yes, yes. And of course, our hosts, LaVonda Wilder and Andrew Brown. We want to thank you for joining and listening. And we continue to look forward to see you again every Friday from 9 to 10. Thank you. Go higher, think greater, be stronger, be wiser. Our seat, our table, this is our voice, our time, our moment, our seat, our table. Yeah, hey, 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 our seat, our table. Hey, 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 our seat, hey, hey, our table. Hey.